This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Textbooks are perhaps the most recognizable part of school systems. You go to school, you learn from a textbook. But what's inside that textbook you're reading? Who wrote it? How are controversial issues dealt with? And have textbooks changed over time? And how do they compare across countries? It seems quite common to do outrageous things with textbooks, to tell history in ways that seem biased or pushing a certain agenda, that kind of thing, Uh, leaving out lots of important details or highlighting others, uh, smoothing things over, that kind of thing. My guest today, Jim Williams, has edited or co-edited three volumes on textbooks. The many chapters across these volumes look at textbooks around the world. The first volume looked at textbooks and national governments. The second explored the issue of identity. And the last zoomed in on textbooks in post-conflict settings. We often think of textbooks as mechanisms for peace and reconciliation. I'm not sure that many people in post-conflict situations think schools ought to be doing that. They probably think schools ought to be teaching kids a national kind of unity, such as is possible, uh, so that we can move forward, as opposed to dredging up the past. Jim Williams is the UNESCO Chair in International Education for Development and Professor of International Education and International Affairs at the George Washington University. While on sabbatical in Tokyo earlier this year, Jim was kind enough to stop by my office where we recorded this interview. Jim Williams, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. So you have recently, over the last few years actually, edited or co-edited a few volumes um, on textbooks and history and identity and memory, um, looking at all sorts of different countries around the world. Um, What can a comparative study of textbooks begin to tell us? Um, Thank you for the question. Um, Comparative study of textbooks, and I suppose most anything, gives you an angle on, by looking at other places, one gets um, a certain amount of insight into one's own place, how uh, how it's the same, perhaps, as others, how it's different than others. And so one benefit of a comparative study is that it allows one to allows you to see say the US or uh, countries one knows well feels strongly about the education of uh, to put them in a larger perspective and to see what's unique what's uh, what's similar in the different places and so it gives you just a bigger perspective one thing um, you can also look uh, the way these are organized, is they're organized comparative across countries. Initially, the idea was to look at how, uh, look, compare across countries, but also compare how textbooks within each country had changed over time during a period of some kind of crisis. And that we realized to some extent, not perfectly. Uh, But one of the other dimensions of comparison that is interesting is to look at the uh, textbook portrayal of particular events and how that changes over a period of time within a country. Because presumably the history 
whatever that is, the, the facts of the situation have not changed in, in a real way, but the understanding of them, the portrayal of them does. So that's interesting. And then also to look across different publishers, different editors. In some countries, it makes a great deal of difference which publisher you look at, uh, how the history is told in other places. It doesn't, depending on how they're made. So what do you get out of it? You get some insight into, like anything, you see similarities where you didn't realize them. You get a bigger perspective on one's own place and other places. And you also get a, uh, a sense of, of differences where you thought there might be some instructive differences. Right. And so let's look at each of these different um, lessons learned. Um, so for to start, what did you learn about, say, America and American education um, by studying the textbooks from other countries? Good question. I approached this, like a lot of people perhaps doing this kind of research, uh, with a bit of, with a perspective. Um, certainly a, uh, a bit of outrage, I suppose, at, uh, my own country's textbooks, how they portrayed different events and how they talked about them. And one thing I learned pretty quickly was that the U.S. certainly does outrageous things with textbooks, but we're by no means the only one. It seems quite common to do what outrageous, to do, to tell history in ways that seem biased or uh, pushing a certain agenda, that kind of thing. Uh, leaving out lots of important details or highlighting others, uh, smoothing things over, that kind of thing. What? So the U.S. is not alone in doing that. And is there a country that sticks out in your mind that was the most outrageous? Hmm. I, um, well, it's hard for me to get away from my own perspective on this. Uh, and perhaps one of the mo- one of the more outrageous would be the shift in uh, Russian textbooks over the last, say, 15 years. The narrowing of, of certain topics, the focusing on, uh, not to demonize Russia, but um, the focusing on facts rather than certain kinds of facts as opposed to inquiry, uh, the uh, use of uh, the kind of a, a truth from the top, so learn it kind of approach to pedagogy that uh, increasingly, and the valorization of the church, of uh, powerful leaders, that kind of thing. I was admittedly told by uh, someone from one of the former republics who perhaps didn't really agree with the direction that Russia was going, but it was interesting, the telling of it. So even if it's got a perspective, uh, it's an instructive one. So that would be one. Uh, I, I, I still think the U.S. is hard to beat in, but again, that's my own, um, my own bias, but it's hard to beat in its failure to really, uh, address U.S., the, the, the big sins of U.S. history. So. Which are? Well, slavery, um, uh, native, uh, taking the land from native people, um, Probably a certain amount of uh, international role, um, the Philippines, that sort of thing. 
Right. So I, I would say uh, our international relations often based on a very quite um, uh, U.S. centric um, perspective at the at least, um, and then Indians, of course, and uh, slavery. And so, so a lot of these textbooks, so in Russia, in America, in other countries as well, um, it seems like what you're saying is that what is found in the textbooks you can kind of read to understand the larger sort of political economy of the, the country, the particular direction the country's going, um, or a particular yes. kind of historical memory that that country would have. And I'm sure that's a, a fallacy of some kind to do that, but it is interesting, and I think you can get something from it. It's probably not, uh, it, it's not a perfect lens, but it does give a certain angle on what is considered authoritative enough to include in the textbooks. Right. And I mean, and in many ways, because particularly public school textbooks are often controlled by some level of government. And in, in the U.S., it's not the federal government. It's, it's lower levels. But right. in other countries, it is the, the Ministry of Education publishing the textbook. So in many ways, it is reflecting the in a sense, the official narrative or discourse or ideology of the state. Right. More or less. More or less. Yes. There can be differences. There can be differences. And I think one of the interesting uh, differences across books and countries and times was the, um, the extent to which that was a tight linkage and to the extent which there was looser allowing for more room for interpretation uh, of the historical material presented. Do you have any examples of that? The U.S. is actually not a bad example of that. There's a strong uh, dominant uh, set of stories, narratives that the U.S. textbooks uh, portray, present, but there's an awful lot of information and a lot of prompts, particularly in recent books, a lot of original source material. And so there's a great deal of room to for teachers and students to come up with their own understanding. Mm. And so it seemed to me, it was in, very interesting looking at U.S. textbooks from the 1930s, really, 30, each decade over the last uh, 67, 70, 80 years. And the U.S. textbooks have become huge, history textbooks talking about now, often... 3,000 pages uh, in two volumes. And that doesn't include the extra material that's available online or in the uh, CDs. And rather than a single text, each page has 10, 5, 10 images of little snippets of stories, quotations, uh, narratives, interpretations, questions. There's a huge amount of room for teaching with if you just think about the book, not thinking about standards or tests or anything like that, but if you just look at the book, there's a huge amount of room to uh, to customize and make it uh, either a very um, pedagogically teacher-centered kind of approach or much more uh, uh, inquiry-centered. So that that's interesting. Did you get into why that change happened in the you know in the American uh, case? I didn't look at it in any systematic way, so I, I think I would guess that the 
rise of historians, really, to in challenging uh, the old um, textbook style, uh, you know, one voice, uh, no agents, just a storyline, facts, and maybe a few little figures of uh, pictures and such. I, they challenged that and tried to bring it out. I'm sure that's got to be a lot of it. So there's a lot of historian of, of academic, uh, positive academic influence, it seems to me, on the textbooks. The thing is, though, that if you've got 3,000 pages of you can't do it all. In one academic year. Or, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so how, so it, it, in a sense, gives the teacher a lot of agency or responsibility in choosing what to do. Right. And so that's a good thing, yes, but it, well, it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I want to go to the, one of these other lessons that you learned was okay. something about these different publishers. Because mm. I, I wonder if um, some of the changes that you're talking about in the American case, um, but all, and also earlier talking about how America is a good example of um, often the, there's a diversity of voices. And I wonder if it's about having these different publishers, that it's not a national ministry mm. producing it. And so I want to ask you about this lesson learned. What, you know, this the different publishers that exist, and you said you can see differences between publishers. What what sort of findings stick out to you? Again, didn't look as systematically as I would if I were had gotten these questions five years ago. But I, I think it's it's interesting. Part of it, I believe, in the U.S. case, is the the publishers competing with each other, and so the brighter and shinier the presentation to students and the more teacher-friendly and or standard-friendly it is, the more likely, surely, the book will be adopted and purchased. And so I think one explanation might be marketing. Uh, it's just easier to sell if it's pretty and lots of interaction. And U.S., uh, and probably everyone, but children in the U.S. seem to be much more attentive to uh, the design, to the interactivity of it, et cetera, et cetera, right, that right. kind of thing. Um, so that's one piece. Um, it's interesting looking, uh, I looked at te uh, Texas in particular, uh, looked at their recommended textbooks because Texas is one of the big markets, and there's a feeling, which I haven't, I could document but haven't, that if it satisfies Texas, you've got the conservative side down. And so te uh, textbook publishers seem to see Texas as kind of the guardrail on the right. Um, on the left, I don't know. I'm not sure there is a guardrail um, or a standard. But I think there's often a concern about satisfying the, satisfying the conservative um, elements in politi U.S. political life, and then doing as much inquiry, what I would think of as progressive uh, in pedagogy as you can to get away with that. Some textbook publishers are much more conservative systematically over a period of time, and much others are more liberal and more open. And there seems to be, I followed um, followed one publisher for 70 years. 
and, uh, you know, again, not totally systematically, but just looking at how the books changed over 70 years. And it's interesting. They, some things stayed the same. Some of the authors stay on the textbooks years after they died. I guess that makes sense because they wrote about the 19, the 2012 edition, uh, is one of the authors is someone who died in, you know, 1990 kind of thing. Uh, it just seems odd to have a new edition completely updated with a uh, you know, an author who's been dead for a while. There's a lot of consistency over time, but it seems that the original black and white portrayals become colorful and more wow. something like that. Political orientation doesn't seem to change much. Right. And what about some of, I mean, not just looking at the U.S., but other contexts, yeah, yeah, what sort of um, events changed over time in some of these textbooks. You said the portrayal of events in some was another comparative lesson you learned. Are there any kind of quintessential examples of, of, of events and how they've changed in their um, representation in textbooks over time? Uh, not to, over, to kill it, but um, Russia, again, uh, tells a very different story in the say, 19, early 1990s and the 2000s, about its past. The facts are similar, but the portrayal is much more national, more authoritative, uh, and in a sense, well, at least authoritative, for sure. Let's see, where else? Um, other places that have changed. Others must have changed quite a bit. Any of the post, any countries that looked at pre and post independence almost always, of course, changed in their portrayal of the, uh, uh, the, the colonial. Um, but not as much as you would think. Some elements stick around. Um, snow. Uh, in tropical countries. For some reason, snow, it seems to be difficult to get rid of snow. Uh, the, you know, the colonizers often came from the north and they had snow and so they wrote about it in the textbooks, uh, for reasons that are not quite clear. Um, but, and then, but, and then for some reason, the very side point, but some of the, um, uh, a lot of the colonies, former colonies, still have snow sticking around and one wonders, 40 years after independence, why? And there's, I mean, these are places that get no snow. They get no snow, yeah. Uh, so there, there, I guess one of the lessons, it's a, a trivial point in some ways, but one of the lessons is that once something is written, it assumes a kind of life of its own and stays, um, at least it has to be challenged uh, fairly thoughtfully to get rid of it. And so you have these sorts of things. Um, that is, doesn't answer your question. But it makes me think that some of, you know, it's interesting to think that this text that is written takes a life of its own. It becomes an agent in it many does. ways. It does. And it's more so than the author. The author could be dead, like you said, but this text lives on and still influences and gets impacted and gets re-understood and has very, well, you know, active qualities. Cambodia is interesting. Cambodia's telling of its past, of course, um, has shifted certainly between the uh, the era when Vietnam was in charge to the era uh, when I guess the international community 
uh, was more in charge. And so that, that telling, even though with the international community playing a big role in Cambodia, uh, the leadership has remained fairly stable. And watching Cambodia tell its stories, who was, in a sense, wrong, who was right, what happened is an interesting case because it's tricky. Uh, there are, in some sense, depending on how you understand it, no one is free of some wrong, and where the wrong gets placed is is tricky to manage. Yeah, and oftentimes, I mean, in textbooks, isn't it, you know, the when these are national, you know, helping create national identity, right? Oftentimes, it's about Othering yes. some group, and it's sometimes, and oftentimes, other countries, neighboring countries, right. saying that you know Cambodians are not Vietnamese. Vietnamese, are not Thai, and it's very clear to you know draw these discursive borders around the identity. Absolutely, and and in Cambodia's case, I think not Vietnamese is a big one. Um, not Thai, I guess, is there, but I didn't see it in the chapters that I work with. Right. Yeah, that that's right. And and in Thailand it's also not Vietnamese. Oh yeah. yeah. And that's how their sort of textbooks are created as well. Uh, so one way is othering others and other, another way is diminishing uh uh omitting. Omitting. Yes. Forgetting a forgetting history. or just not talking about it. Right. Or minimizing it. So that's one of the reasons I think the US textbooks are so outrageous. They, you know, they talk about slavery, they talk about the native populations, but it's the the taking of the land, but it's not. It arouses no outrage, as it seems like it should. Yeah, it's like very normalized. Yeah, and often very short. So one textbook I looked at from the '30s had a, um, I think it was five pages referencing the native population out of I don't know five six hundred. So it's really pretty minimal yeah. kind of reference, yeah. Wow, just the token sort of acknowledgement. Yeah, just you got to say something. Yeah. So um, let's see. So some of these minority groups that obviously at times get left out of these official narratives, were there, were there any cases in these volumes that you co-edited that showed a success of a minority group getting integrated into the textbook? The approach to integrating minorities is interesting. Uh, maybe Canada and the U.S. would be interesting. Canada um, went through a very thoroughgoing, and Australia as well. I just don't know the Australia case and don't have a chapter on Australia. <laughs> um, but Canada is uh, is interesting because it went through a, a thoroughgoing revision of its view of its past, and particularly a relationship with uh, Native people and uh, First Nations, I guess. And that's absolutely clear in the books, in the rec and in their, what I would consider a very positive affirmation of the importance of the different groups that make up Canada and the Indigenous people, the um, errors that the government and the people now see in past treatments 
and the current efforts to uh, redress those differences. Um, very, very clear. And in the U.S., there is that. It fits into the U.S. narrative of, uh, James Lowen put it, what is it? The U.S. started out pretty good and it's been getting better ever since. And so, yeah, we had some, we, we began to realize that we had some problems with minorities. And so then we started, to, we took steps to address them. Um, there were some struggles, but now we're doing much better. And part of it is the appearance in just images. So at previously, the earliest times, you know, in very stark terms, there were only heroes who tended to be military or political leaders, white men. Um, and then gradually, uh, there were groups of people. And then gradually, in, we started to see minorities appearing in uniform. So Italian Americans fighting in World War II, Japanese Americans fighting in World War II, women uh, appearing supporting roles, and then etc. And so somehow in the U.S., the military portrayal of, of minorities in the military seems to signal a kind of acceptance and integration. Um, and there's discussion of, of course, the social process, political process that are happening at the same time. But it's interesting, you can just watching over the decades, you begin to see one and then two and then three soldiers of a different ethnic group than, uh, or, uh, uh, and even naming ethnic groups was something that was not really done, uh, other than in the chapters about immigration. So there's much more of a an explicit recognition of minorities, just naming of them, I think, naming and, and visualizing. Right. right, and that's a pretty powerful statement. It is, it is, yeah. Right. And what about, so you have a whole book, one of the volumes is on post-conflict yes. countries. Uh, and so what is the significance and role of textbooks and history education in post-conflict countries? It's a good question and a complicated answer, maybe because still working it out. During conflict, textbooks tend to either, depending on the wealth of the country, I suppose the resources, textbooks tend to be either, they stay put, you know, nothing happens. Um, and so after, during the conflict, after the conflict, you end up with books that are however many years old and they have the old stories. Um, and that lasts for a good while in a lot of places. Some places the U.S. had resources to mobilize, to change textbooks such as to, in a sense, mobilize the population during wars. And so World War II, textbooks produced during World War II and slightly after tended to be a kind of a mobilization mode. And the Cold War was definitely a mobilization period in, in the U.S. I'm talking about the U.S. a lot, huh? And um, the, uh, definitely a period of, of kind of getting people going. But most countries just leave them alone. And most places that I've looked at, the books look at, don't textbooks, te curriculum revision takes a while. And particularly if it's a, uh, a conflict in which there's a, an interstate conflict, it's not so bad. 
not so difficult to revise the textbooks. Usually there's a winner and a loser. If you're the winner, that's easy. You tell the story of how the, your virtue won. If you're the loser, it's more complicated because you have to explain how it is that despite being a virtuous people, you lost, um, fought the good fight, um, or something. Um, the, but internal conflict is much, much, much more difficult. Uh, Rwanda, Liberia, um, Cambodia. Uh, those places much harder to tell the story because it's inside and it's often not finished with the uh, cessation of, of conflict, of, of actual armed conflict. And so you still got all these groups that are not quite finished with their fighting or the hostilities remain, the, the core conditions that led to the conflict may not have been resolved, often aren't. And it's very, very hard to tell a story about that. Uh, and so I'm convinced that it basically takes a generation before that story can be written. Rwanda, right after the, well, not right after, but for 10 years maybe after the genocide, um, uh, didn't teach history. And then they did write. And then the textbooks were revised and they talked about it gingerly. Uh, they talked about it in, in a sense, Attempting to not reignite conflict and not by, in, in a sense, not mentioning ethnicity, or at least not emphasizing ethnicity. So it's tricky to do that. Um, textbooks, because, because the, it's an authoritative version and there may not be an agreement about what actually happened, who was at fault, that kind of thing. Uh, they tend to be fairly uh, close to the facts that everybody agrees on when they talk about internal conflict. It may take a while to come out with something. But even more interesting was the, the question that arose. Often we think of maybe drawing on the experience of Germany after World War II, where it, um, with support from uh, European agencies and um, the EU, I suppose, in some way, and uh, scholars in Germany and such, used textbook uh, reform revision as a way of, as part of the peace process, in a sense, uh, the larger peace process with Poland and France. Um, that did not happen in Japan. Um, and textbooks remain a very hotly contested item in East Asia. Japanese textbooks about World War II still not uh, resolved. Um, so there's a question about, in many cases, can should schools be teaching, trying to do this? We often think of textbooks as, uh, schools and textbooks as peace reconciliation mechanisms for peace and reconciliation. I'm not sure that many people in post-conflict situations think schools ought to be doing that. They probably think schools ought to be teaching kids skills so they can get jobs, cooperation so we can get on with things, uh, national uh, kind of unity such as is possible uh, so that we can move forward as opposed to dredging up the past. And so there's often a, an angle, it seems, of looking to the future. Let's not dwell on the past kind of thing in that situation. That would leave the teaching of history in a very problematic place. It leads it in a pretty <laughs> problematic place. 
And so um, Bellino Michelle, um, co-author of actually this last book, but she wrote a very nice chapter in the first one um, in which she talked about community memory communities in Guatemala, essentially remembering the Civil War in very different places outside of school, not the kind of thing taught in school. Right, and this is where historical memory comes in, where right. it's collective memory can be understood and taught through the church or the, you know, whatever religious institution or the family or there's so many countless right. kind of memorials that happen that are, are not state-sanctioned. Um, yeah. And they pass on the knowledge um, beyond what's taught in schools. And so schools have a remarkable, uh, remarkable ability, including textbooks have a remarkable, remarkable ability not to talk about things. Incredible. Yeah. Important things. Yeah. And so in the U.S., you know, again, we really don't talk about race. I know. I was amazed to learn that the Smithsonian opened up a National Slavery Museum yeah. just a year ago, less than a year less ago. Less than a year ago, yeah. And it was the first one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just incredible. Um, African American history. After African American history museum. Which slave right? slavery plays a big right. role. But it is amazing, yes, to, that it would take that long to to do that. Right. And so, I mean, one, one of the things I love about your volumes is that it shows how political education is in so many contexts. Right. Because we often do think, you know, one narrative of education is about skills and knowledge for the labor market. And it is, it is sometimes very apolitical, the conversation we have. Whereas your textbooks or your volumes really show how textbooks and education are so deeply political. And it's quite refreshing in my mind to, to read that. Um, so I wanted to ask as the final question, did you change your thinking on like the politics of schooling after finishing the third volume, after going three volumes with, I don't even know how many chapters, looking at countries from all over the world? You know, Did your thinking on, on the politics of school change in any way, in any noticeable way? It deepened. I guess my initial hunches deepened, but I don't know that it changed. Perhaps I didn't learn anything from the books. I'm not sure I learned something new. I learned how, I learned to elaborate the ways that initial hunches played out. Um, I think I came to an appreciation. This isn't quite what you're asking, but of the of these three types of history that uh, Caratero talks about, of uh, everyday history being what we hear around us, uh, the kind of the media, family, community, church, the stuff you come into school with already in mind, the um, academic history being the kind of thing we're trying to get at, I suppose, by teaching children how to think historically, and then the school history which marries those two or somehow has to balance those two trying to be an academic, uh, inquiry, uh, fact-driven approach, at the same time having the charge of building a, a loyalty and an emotional attachment to this country, which is not necessarily natural to do that, to have that attachment. And so coming to see how different countries try to manage that, those... Um, differences and seeing how far actually most 
textbooks seem to be on the side of um, school history as an emotional, political emotional um, attachment process as opposed to a, uh, uh, an academic exercise. Well, Jim Williams, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It was very much a pleasure to, to talk all about these different books. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Jim Williams is the UNESCO Chair in International Education for Development and Professor of International Education and International Affairs at the George Washington University. You can find links to his three volumes at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.